Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Music History Project. Today we're going to be talking about Dr. Robert Moog. talking about Dr. Robert Moog and you guys are missing out because we even have props out today on our production table. Inspirational. Special occasion. Yeah and it's really great we had to break it out of the collector's box and everything so all the value is now gone but it is creating quite the inspiration for us here. This is exciting too because Dr. Robert Moog was indeed a uh, pioneer in the music products industry and a good friend to many of us so it's uh, a wonderful opportunity for us to celebrate his life and his achievements. And I guess this is all based on the uh, oral history interview uh, for the NAM archives that we conducted with uh, Dr. Mo- uh, Robert Moog. And we're excited that you're gonna be joining us as we uh, play that interview and talk a little bit about his contributions. Now, <clears throat> we've actually interviewed him twice in the program for the program, but currently we only have his ladder the second interview up online and that's the one we're going to be referencing today so if you have any interest in checking out the first one don't hesitate to drop us a line at library at nam.org and we can see what we can do for you but this is going to be the second interview with dr moog that took place in do we know when february i don't know no, <laughs> well i'll look that up well and then we'll come back right shortly because michael do a good job editing All right, so that interview date was January 21st, 2005. That was some pretty speedy research. That was pretty good. That was some pretty good editing, too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I swear there wasn't a 20-minute break in between. (laughs) Um, And it looks like from our records, Dan, that shortly after our interview, second interview with Dr. Moog, um, just a few minutes later is actually when he passed away. Yeah, very sadly. Absolutely. You know, within our industry, he's a giant because of the man he was in addition to the innovations that he created. Outside the industry, he's really well known as the uh, father of the synthesizer. And uh, for those who had the opportunity to uh, engage him in any uh, capacity, whether it was at the NAMM show or here at the Museum of Making Music in Carlsbad, he was so accessible and always interested in talking to people. And I think the warmth of the man is just as compelling as the brilliance of what he was able to create electronically as far as musical instruments go. So I'm really fascinated by uh, this uh, podcast because it gives us an opportunity to uh, share his legacy. So let's jump right in and hear from Dr. Moog. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Was it electronics or music that led you towards the creation of the Moog synthesizer? It was more electronics than music, but it was also music. I had been taking uh, piano lessons since the age of four, so uh, I I knew about music and uh, the idea of playing uh, another instrument uh, and building another instrument was related somehow to that. In the beginning, in your earlier instruments, uh, was a keyboard incorporated in your instruments? No, uh, keyboard came later, and it w- uh, in the very earliest years of working on a synthesizer from, say, 1964 through 1968, 
uh, the keyboard was just one way of controlling the instrument. Uh, now, w once switched on, Bach came out, and it was became evident that you could make real traditional music with the synthesizer. Then suddenly, a, a lot of mainstream musicians wanted to be able to play it, uh, and for that, uh, they needed key uh, keyboards. So we mentioned having props out earlier, and uh, our prop has to do with the next section of the interview you're going to hear, and it is a really awesome, I don't even know how to describe it, figurine? Action figure? A action figure. I mean, doesn't it doesn't have any action to it. Yeah, that's true. Um, but it's of the band leader Raymond Scott. Oh, and Dan's now moving it around, making him dance. <laughs> so it's Raymond Scott <laughs> playing a piano, two separate pieces, assembly required. Um <clears throat> And it's really, it's pretty neat. The box is really colorful. I don't know. You're lucky if you he's, have one. He's got a nice pose too. He does, he's, but he's not playing with the correct uh, form for the piano. He's got a single finger. He's like chicken pecking <laughs> the keyboard there. Well, what you can't see is it actually is not a piano. Oh, it's not? Oh, I had the back view of it. I'm giving her a closer look. Raymond Scott was uh, a band leader and a composer he was born in 1908, passed away in uh, 1994, and had a huge career uh, with music during the uh, late 1940s and early 50s. In fact, m many of his recordings became songs for cartoons during that time. Um, and th things like Huckleberry Duck uh, come to mind and Powerhouse were songs that are probably very recognizable uh, once you hear them. Uh, if you've ever listened to uh, Warner Brother cartoons during that time. And in addition to that career, he also tinkered with electronic musical instruments and created his own set of instruments as a result and was an inspiration, as we're going to hear, of Dr. Robert Moog. Now, an interesting little side note, um, we are actually uh, in the process of digitizing a radio interview that I had with uh, Mr. Scott uh, just about two weeks before he had a, uh, a stroke that left him uh, unable to speak. So I, I believe it's the very last interview that was ever conducted with him. And uh, a very fascinating guy. I, I think he basically has a cult following of folks, maybe because of the cartoons, maybe because of the electronic uh, instruments that he created, uh, and maybe because of his personality. He was a very charming guy who had a lot to say. So uh, I think it's wonderful that we have an opportunity to uh, further his own legacy by chatting with him, and, or about him rather, today and uh, listening to what uh, uh, Dr. Moog has to say about him. So let's hear... Uh, from Dr. Moog talking about Raymond Scott. Was Raymond Scott a big help in your early designs? I wouldn't say so. Uh, in fact, I think it was the other way around. We did work for, for Scott, and uh, Scott uh, was rather secretive about what he was doing. Uh, we knew he was doing quite a bit, but he was very cagey about telling us what he did. So next up, we're going to talk about a different kind of instrument, that we really haven't touched on yet in this podcast, and that is the theremin. Now, the theremin was the first uh, electronic instrument um, that you were able to buy, and it's a really strange, uh, different way to play uh, type of instrument, um, different than like a stringed instrument or, 
or drums or a piano or anything like that. And you actually use your arms and where your body's positioned to create these really eerie sounding um, electronic sounds. Um, the best way I could describe it is watch any horror movie <laughs> and anytime there's like a scary scene where something pops out, it's usually a theremin that they're using. <laughs> yes. Apparently thanks. there's a ghost in here as well. So <laughs> Dan impersonating a theremin. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Moog was super into theremins as, as well as somebody else that we've interviewed. Yeah, absolutely. What's interesting to me is the influence that theremin had on Bob Moog. Uh, Bob was greatly influenced. In fact, uh, looked at some of those hobbyist magazines in the early 50s and sent away with uh, a couple of dollars to get a kit and building his own theremin um, as a kid. And that really, I think, was a great inspiration to to uh, Robert Moog. And what's interesting to me is that the concept of the theremin really is that there's two oscillators that are pointing to each other to create a pitch similar to those old-fashioned radios that you had in your car where you would turn the dial and in between finding a station you'd hear that static that and that's basically oscillators looking for a frequency and what theremin came up with was the concept of manipulating that uh, by having your hand uh, interfere between those two oscillators and creating a different pitch or frequency and what Bob realized was it's too difficult to just wave your hands in front of this box uh, to be consistent. You can't do it over and over again. And certainly it'd be very difficult to teach somebody else because what your body mass is is different than the next person. So Bob essentially took that concept and put it to a keyboard and created the synthesizer. That's the simplistic way of saying it, but it was definitely a major influence. Well, about that same time, somewhere in the middle, there was a gentleman up in Berkeley named Don Buchla who was working on very similar processes. And uh, while he didn't go commercial and create a synthesizer like Bob did that became uh, purchasable, uh, he definitely did a lot of research and. Uh, a lot of development in in that field and what i'd love to play for you now is just a quick segment from our 2011 interview with uh with don buchla who actually had a couple of opportunities to meet mr theremin uh who was by the way a russian physicist who because he worked for the kgb had a hard time uh leaving his country he knew too much as it were so uh here's don buchla i liked it I liked it a lot, and I later met Thurman, and in fact appeared on the stage with him, but, uh, and he was a fun guy, 90 years old. But <laughs> What was that occasion? He was brought out here by the Stanford people when they celebrated their 100th anniversary, and, and I played a ridiculous piece called uh, Vol. And he appeared uh, a little earlier with his daughter and with um, another astounding theremin player. There were quite a few pieces on that concert. It was a fun concert. And later I encountered him, or earlier actually, in Bourges. He was in, in one of the Bourges festivals, and I played quite a few of the Bourges festivals. So we met there also. 
what sort of guy was he? Traditional Russian? Oh, he, th he was pretty, uh, pretty wild, particularly in his youth. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he has a crazy story. His life story is pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I remember the dancing girls. They were dancing on the uh, theremin, and they had uh, oh short skirts and pretty risque for the day in Russia. <laughs> he developed other instruments in the theremin. That's the one he's known for. But he never really got into. Synthesis, I guess. No. No, I don't think so. No. But he was very conscious of of timbre, very aware of it, and built an instrument that was had an extremely rich timbre, if not a great variety. But uh, but it was certainly amazing. He did what he did without the assistance of an oscilloscope, without being able to view the waveforms that he was dealing with. It's amazing what he what he accomplished with an instrument with four or five tubes in it. Or I guess that varied, but he was an idol of mine and of Moog's, of course. Who got even further into the theremins? It's kind of interesting that your inspirations are kind of parallel in the sense that he was inspired by. Or not inspired, but he was working on a non-musical project in, in a listening device, right? And that he came up with the theremin concept, and you were looking at a, a, a non-musical device that you were raised the question of creating an intentional musical yeah. machine. Yeah, theremin was certainly built that as an intentional musical instrument. His uh, he was unfortunately a uh, an expert in in radar, and during the war couldn't travel to the U.S. In fact, it was many, many years later. I remember a person in Boers trying to get him to come to Boers, and she called the uh, Soviet Secret Service and, the, and had to get special permission. She actually got in on the phone lines, and she, of course, spoke very fluent Russian, and she got in on the, uh, the KBV phone lines or whatever, talked the right people into letting him have a visa to get out of the country. He hadn't been out of the... I, I met him at the, when he first came into uh, France. He was driven there by his... Uh, I believe by his daughter. What year was that? Oh, it was in the... 70s, but I don't remember exactly what year. And so it was even after that that he could come to the U.S., I guess. Yes, it was after that that, that he made it to the U.S. But this one woman worked, worked very diligently for some time to get him out of Russia. He was, they didn't want to let anybody out that would know anything about radar. Hmm. And now here's Dr. Moog talking about theremins and the beginning of his career. I know you worked with theremins from a very young age. Mm -hmm. Did you ever try to make a better theremin? Was that a start for what you ended up with? I, I learned what a good theremin was uh, as, uh, as I went along. When I began, uh, uh, 
I built my first theremin at the age of 14, and it was from a do-it-yourself project. A theremin was a big mystery back then. Uh, there were only a few, a few hundred in existence, and uh, I'd never actually seen one or heard one. And then uh, I think my mother found, uh, in a record store, she, she found an album of 78s was on special sale because one of the records had broken. And it was a uh, perfume set to music uh, by Dr. Samuel Hoffman, Harry Ravella, I believe. And then I knew what the theremin was supposed to sound like. But uh, it, it, uh, it took, uh, took me many years to learn what a good theremin was, and by and large it was what Leon Theremin himself did. So uh, I made a lot of mistakes in the early days uh, and gradually uh, learned the same thing that Leon Thurman himself learned. We just spoke about a keyboard on the synthesizers. Mm -hmm. uh, the theremin is so in opposition with having a keyboard because all the notes kind of glide together. Mm -hmm. um, did that change your musical taste at all to deal with theremins? Did it get you into microtonal music? I'm sure it did. It, uh, it certainly acquainted uh, me with the possibilities of changing the quality of sound uh, by electronic means uh, and of making sounds that were with gliding pitch that you don't learn when you play the piano. Uh, and, you know, gradually my ears did. Uh, uh, well, I, for sure I, I developed a better sense of pitch. I never had that good a sense of pitch as a piano player. I could play the right keys, but uh, if if one key was a little bit out of tune, uh, it was not something I had to worry about. But in in playing the theremin, you 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 have to have a very good ear, and I I I developed my ear as time went on. Did you ever try to change the timbral quality of the theremins? Yeah, yeah, I did. I experimented with uh, changing the waveform, with adding individual overtones. The, the first instrument uh, that I described in a magazine article that was in 1954 uh, was an instrument uh, that offered several timbre variations. You said that you started working on theremins at a young age. Mm -hmm. um, I had read that you started working on theremins with your father. Yeah. It's interesting. Could you elaborate yeah. on that? Uh, my father had a complete shop in the basement of our house. And he was a very good all-around uh, woodworker, and he was an electrical engineer himself, so he, he knew about electronics. And in fact, he was one of the very earliest uh, amateur radio operators, licensed amateur radio operators. So he, he knew a little bit about electronic circuitry and about building electronic equipment. And uh, I used to like to work with him. I learned how to, in my first experiences with electronics, were doing things with him. And also my first experience making something out of wood or something out of steel were with him. When you entered your formal electronics education, mm -hmm. what did your teachers think of you working in these different electronic musical instruments? 
it was transparent to them. Um, when I started my engineering education, this is now my fourth year in college, I began uh, my engineering education. Uh, I was very busy and I didn't have much chance to <laughs> in, indulge in uh, hobbies, electronics or otherwise. Uh, and. Uh, you know, it was a big engineering class. The class, uh, the the individual classes were were formal and large. The professor got up and talked, and he didn't have much of an idea of what his students were interested in. That he just told you the engineering things you had to know. When did you start incorporating innovation into pre-existing technology? Well, uh, it's hard to, to identify an abrupt point, but uh, a lot of what I did even in the early days uh, was ideas that seemed right to me. I had no way of knowing whether they were innovation or not, if they just seemed right. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's, it was that way, it was always that way. And little by little, uh, the, the contributions I made to the state of electronic musical instrument art became more and more substantial. Uh, you know, as, as I learned what other people did and uh, avoided doing the same thing myself. Were you met with acceptance or resistance when your professors started to realize your pursuits? Well, by the time I was a graduate student, uh, <coughs> I, I had a little part-time business. Uh, the, 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 the theremins were pretty good by that time. Now, now we're talking uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. And uh, I, uh, I spent quite a bit of time building instruments myself, one at a time. I had a, a, a sales representative, a man by the name of Arnold Carl Westfall, who uh, was an itinerant preacher. And he introduced the theremin to a, a lot of people like him who went from church to church, putting on services that were very often musically based. And the, the theremin turned out to be uh, very good for that sort of thing. So he was out there getting sales and I was, you know, I was, taking the time to fill those orders. And my thesis advisor eventually found out what I was doing. Uh, it's nothing I, I ever brought in to the university. It's just, it sort of leaked out that I was working on this. And uh, you know, he started to put up the heat on me to, to, to uh, finish, <laughs> finish my doctoral dissertation so that then I could do what I want and he wouldn't have to put up with me. So would we consider that the beginning of Moog Music as a company? It was very much a part-time business. Uh, starting in 1954, th there, was, we, there was something called the R.A. Moog Company, but that was my father and me. And uh, you know, once uh, I left home, it, it was just me, just one part-time person. Uh, 
the first time that I think you could call it a serious business was in 1964 uh, when I decided to more or less become a full-time business even though my doctoral dissertation wasn't quite done. And uh, my thesis advisor put up with that for about one year. And then one night at nine o'clock when we were, uh, the whole group of us, finishing a special custom order for John Cage. Uh, and uh, it wasn't going well. Uh, there was some problem with the components we were using. It was nine o'clock at night. My thesis advisor called me up and he said, Moog, he said, whatever is not on my desk 10 o'clock tomorrow morning is not going in your thesis. Good night. And that's how I finished my PhD thesis. <laughs> so uh, I, I guess by that point, uh, uh, you know, the, we, uh, the company existed as a full-time company. Uh, and that was, that was 1965. And we, uh, I had already taken orders for uh, synthesizer modules then. Who were your clients? Mostly uh, composers in universities, experimental composers. A few private experimental composers and very occasionally uh, someone in the commercial field who had the, uh, the, the, the foresight to understand what could be done with this funny electronic stuff. So we just got done hearing from Dr. Moog talking about the start of his career, like Mike mentioned early, as well as the last little bit talking about some of his early clients, which I found exceptionally interesting. And I wanted to ask you two guys, why do you think at the beginning of his work he had such a hard time kind of getting people to, um, I don't know, adopt or? Nobody was doing it. Right. I think think really what happened was when um, Walter... uh, Carlos finally made that very famous record hooked on Bach uh, using the Moog. It really wasn't until that moment where most people realized that this could be musical. Up until that point, it's my assessment that uh, most of it was just kind of generating sounds and pitches and bleeps and blurps and not necessarily something that could be rhythmic. And of course, uh, Walter Carlos's album sort of single-handedly proved all of that. completely wrong it totally could be and was and I think that was a huge influence in fact I hear about that uh, that recording probably more than any other when talking to folks who were influenced by music of the 1960s because that really ushered in a great um, amount of uh, creativity amongst artists and composers and of course a lot of those folks wound up being in the music products industry and helping with things like the Roland synthesizers and and emu and others that were looking to take it to the next step so do you think before that point you would people would have classified Dr. Moog's work more as like engineering and science as opposed to music related I think so. I mean, that's that's a good question. I think that there were definitely some recordings. Uh, the Beatles, for example, uh, incorporated the Moog, so it was musical. It's just that it wasn't as accessible. So then I guess my follow-up question would be, has there been any innovation or musical invention or anything like that since then 
that you think could be compared to that that kind of revolutionized the way music has been perceived i don't i don't think it's the same thing but i think you could draw similarities from maybe like ipads and iphones and uh mobile recording studios and that kind of thing on how it's totally different and people aren't really used to it yet so it's 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 gaining some traction but people are still they want to do it the old school way as everybody Mm -hmm. says just because they're used to it but i i see in the future um mobile things just being a lot more prevalent than they are now so maybe that could be that's kind of similar but i mean i don't know anything that like instrument wise that's coming out that's totally different than right the only thing i could see maybe like re- even remotely and it would be a really big stretch would be like the adoption of the drum machine as opposed to that like just the kind of uh hesitance that the community had to incorporate it yeah yeah i could see that um or like the other day we were talking about edm music and like right the sampling of it is right yeah. not always interpreted as being creative yeah, all that kind of stuff. It's it's um, when it comes to uh, creating music in a much more simple way mm-hmm. these days, um, it's definitely frowned upon just because people aren't used to it. But maybe that's the same kind of concept going on. I also think that what was revolutionary about the Moog, uh, certainly th- the first uh, series of them, the Mini Moog included, was the accessibility of it. You know, here you had sounds being created on albums by artists like the Beatles, but it wasn't accessible to you as an artist, as a guy in the garage or tinkering around or, you know, somebody in school interested in this kind of thing until these products came to your local music store. Um, Like I say, Don Buchla was working on things um, prior to this, so was Raymond Scott and, and a few others. So what uh, Dr. Moog did was give us, the consumer, the musician, uh, the opportunity to tinker with it ourselves and create our own sound and, uh, and our own voice. And I think that is difficult to say it's been duplicated because, of course, it has been. There's been lots of products that have come out that have inspired people, but to the mass, uh, it's, it's unlikely that anything has been as impactful as the as the synthesizer, and maybe that's just the attitude of now that Dr. Moog has kind of broken the dynamics and the strict kind of perception of what is a musical instrument and what isn't. Now that that kind of like glass ceiling had been shattered by him, maybe nothing else could ever do that because it all can be accepted. Because look at what he's gained approval of. I don't know. So we're gonna hear more uh, in this next segment about Dr. Moog's work and. A lot of the inspiration and some songs and recordings his work was used on as well as connecting trying to connect instruments and make his products more accessible to the average musician were there any novelty songs that came out in the 60s that you recall that had your instruments in them and they became famous because of the sounds of your instruments In the late 60s, uh, there were many so-called Moog records. Well, what happened uh, was that uh, after the first few years of our making synthesizer equipment for avant-garde and experimental composers, uh, various people from the pop music field and the musical mainstream uh, began to learn what we were doing. 
and began their own experimentation. Dick Hyman uh, was a, you know, still is a, a, a well-known keyboard player, and uh, he made two albums. Well, one of them was called simply Moog, big letters, M-O-O-G. <laughs> and uh, one of the tunes on that that achieved popularity at the time was called The Minotaur. And Dick Hyman is a very good musician, so anything he does sounds good. Uh, the really big record at that time, of course, was Switched on Bach that came out at the end of 1968. And, uh, you know, there were a few novelties before that, but after that there was just a huge amount of, of people in the music business rushing in to, to capitalize on the success of Switched on Bach. Did that commercial success start to change your direction? Yes. As soon as Switched on Bach came out, uh, maybe 90% or 95% of our orders were for modular synthesizers with keyboards. And, uh, you know, gradually uh, the production of traditional tonal music became much more important than it was in the mid-60s when we were just beginning. See, when, when we were first beginning, what these experimental composers were interested in was in composing timbres, ha having different sounds, and putting one type of sound uh, in relation to another type of sound. Melody, harmony, and traditional rhythm wasn't as important. And we, we just didn't emphasize the accurate control of pitch at that time because uh, it, it wasn't important to these early composers. But after Switched on Bach, the, the accurate control of pitch, the ability to play notes from a keyboard, uh, you know, they, they became very important. Was sequencing a major part of what you built in the early synthesizers? No. Um, that's, that's one of the big differences between uh, what Don Buchler did and, and what uh, what we did uh, from the very beginning of Don's work, and actually Don began working before I began building synthesizers. He, his work preceded mine by about a year, I think. And the idea of sequencers, analog sequencers, uh, was basic to his instruments. Now, eventually, we did introduce a sequencer, and you know, if I'll, I'll be happy to admit that. Uh, it's Don's work that gave us the idea for how to do that. Uh, and uh, when we introduced the sequencer, it was uh, another facility for making patterned sounds, but still the, the keyboard was the most important way of controlling the sounds. Patterned sounds were so integral to 70s music, yeah. the disco craze. Yeah, yeah. Did that start to change your focus to where you incorporated more sequencers or uh, timing uh, sequences of, let's say, arrays of sounds? Did that change your, your focus a lot for the 70s? In other words, were your instruments designed around the music, or did the music start to design the instruments in the 70s? <laughs> uh, 
we, we had a sequencer, the, uh, one model of sequencer. Uh, and as uh, our instruments went from being modular in the 60s to being integrated complete units like the Minimoog in the 70s, uh, we didn't have anything beyond that one model of sequencer that could be used. And, uh, I, I don't think that the ability to make patterns automatically was that important for the design of our instruments all the way through the 70s. Did you start to respond for the need for more sounds by coming up with some sort of a an interface between your instruments, in other words, between different models of the instruments yeah. in the 70s? Uh, the way it went uh, was that in the 60s we developed the modular synthesizer. And most of the instruments uh, that we introduced in the 70s were subsets of that modular, of the modular capabilities. The Mini Moog uh, is the capability of one, two, three, you know, maybe a dozen modules sort of stuffed into one box. And instruments like the Micromog are even fewer, and the Rogue are even fewer than that. Uh, so, you know, in, in, in terms of flexibility and ability to make wide ranges of sound, the modular s synthesizers were then and still are the, the best thing to use. But uh, during the 70s, it was more a marketing exercise, picking price points and getting the right feature set uh, to meet that price point. Did you have requests to start connecting all these different instruments that you had made? Did people have a collection of your instruments and want to interconnect them? Uh, well, they could. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the, the Minimoog Model D that we introduced in 1970 had uh, three control inputs and a, and a gate input that could be used in combination with modular stuff. Uh, not too many people did that, but the capability was there. And uh, throughout the 70s, we introduced some accessory controllers. There was a drum, there was a little sample and hold module, there was a ribbon controller, and you could plug any of these things in at all to control the Minimoog or uh, some of the other models that were introduced in the 70s. How did you respond to uh, questions during the 70s, people asking for the ability to be able to connect, let's say, your keyboard up with a, an Oberheim synthesizer. Did you ever come up with any special interface to be able to interconnect synthesizers of different manufacturers? By and large, uh, the uh, the one volt per octave uh, control of pitch by, by an external control voltage was accepted by most of the synthesizer manufacturers. Uh, you know, the idea of, of, of being able to turn a bunch of knobs on this machine and have the sound from this machine follow all those knobs, uh, that, that rarely came up that, uh, because what this machine did was basically different from what this machine did. Uh, you know, there, there was there was no MIDI then. 
there was connection via control voltage. Uh, Tom Oberheim's instruments and also Dave Smith's instruments uh, were the first polyphonic instruments and the, they developed special digital interfaces. Uh, I, I didn't participate, I personally didn't participate at, up until the time I left Norlin at the end of 1978. Did you have requests for um, divider circuits or multiplier circuits to increase the control voltage or change the control voltage so that it could communicate with 1.5 volt per octave instruments? It's possible that questions like that came up, but the answers were very easy. Uh, you know, most modular synthesizers had the ability to process control voltage to change uh, the, the scale of, of, of any of the voltages. That was, that was a very simple thing to do. What was your impression of this notion of interconnecting synthesizers of different manufacturers with a di digital interface? <laughs> well, all that became possible after I left Norwood. Uh, I think the state of the, of, of the art when I left, I said before that it was the end of 78. It wasn't, it was the end of 77. But the state of the art was that the only instruments that were using uh, digital control were uh, very large instruments like the Fairlight and the Synclavier. They didn't have much to do with control voltages at all. They, they, they were they were completely in the digital domain. Uh, so the, the the analog instruments that we built throughout the 70s, up until the time I left Norland. Uh, had real, no real capability of being controlled by digital interfaces, and and it's true the other way around. You know, today we all take for for granted that musicians have you know, digital workstations, they have di digital controllers, they have digital synthesizers. Uh, the first. Uh, as I remember it, you know, the first all-digital instrument uh, to become important to musicians was the Yamaha DX7. Uh, you know, they were experimenting up up to that, but the, you know, it was mostly the sort of thing that they showed at a show, and there'd be two or three engineers behind, you know, in the next room waiting to go in and fix it should it break, uh, and. Uh, you know, the, it was not something that the dealers were involved in, the musical instrument dealers were involved in until Yamaha made this incredible breakthrough of, of the DX7. So until that happened, uh, it, it was unthinkable to, well, not unthinkable, but uh, nobody th thought of that, that much about uh, standardizing on, on the interface so that instruments of different manufacturers could be played together. Well, I hope you guys are enjoying this as much as I am. It's always uh, fascinating to get in the uh, middle of an interview with somebody who is as compelling as Dr. Moog was. I also wanted to mention, uh, while we're talking about some of the, uh, the staff and engineers that he hired and worked with, 
Uh, uh, several of them we were lucky enough over the years to interview as part of the NAM Oral History Program. Uh, so uh, web clips from uh, each of these are available on our website. Herb Deutsch, um, Dave Luce, David Van uh, Covering, and, uh, and even Tom Ray, who went on to become a professor over at Berkeley, uh, was one of the, uh, the early sales reps for the company uh, when Bob was first starting out in the 1960s. And Mike, what's that web address they can go to again? That is www.namnamm.org slash library. That was very like PBS you know, kind been, of I've been like practicing. NPR. You're going to move on to bigger and better things here soon. Don't say that. You, you have no idea how I can fly. <laughs> <laughs> again, don't say that. <laughs> Okay, so now we're going off to a, another segment of Dr. Robert Moog's uh, NAM oral history interview, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, the uh, the sources that he used, as well as how the uh, the instrument developed in the 1970s. Would you consider the, the Moog source and the Poly Moog to be the closest step into new synthesis? Moog source was uh, was just a basic uh, two voice instrument. What it had in it is the uh, the ability to to control the, 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 uh, to, to to store panel settings, but it was still uh, completely uh, analog and completely uh, it, it was very similar to what had been built up until then. I don't think it sounds very different. Uh, the poly Moog. Uh, is an all analog instrument, but it, it uses a different sort of uh, sound shaping. It uses organ technology, top octave synthesizer and divide down circuits to, to make all the notes. And every note had a little uh, envelope generator and filter on it. So it was basically a different architecture, but it was still all analog. If I have one final question to ask you. Yeah. If an asteroid passed by the Earth <laughs> and uh, rendered no electricity, yeah, would you still make musical instruments? No, sure. <laughs> yeah, I love musical instruments. Uh, you, you know, uh, whenever people make musical instruments, they use the most sophisticated technologies and the most up-to-date materials of the times. When people made drums back, you know, five thousand years, ten thousand years ago. Uh, you know, that was high tech, that they used the sharpest chisels they could find and the sharpest knives, and the, the best stone, and, they, the, and the, they got the best log they could get. Uh, you know, and I would do the same thing, I, you know, sure. I'm very curious about um, what motivated you or who motivated mm. you to start to think in terms of making the Moog more mobile and something that someone could take on the road during a tour. Well, it, it wasn't so much a toury thing. Uh, what, what it was uh, was we were in the '60s. We were designing modular systems, and we had two types of cabinets: a console cabinet and a portable cabinet. And uh, you know that was the beginning. Uh, you could you could buy a large synthesizer that would be in three or four cabinets, and each one had a handle on it, and you could load it into a truck, or you know it was portable. <laughs> You wouldn't want to, you know, 
carry it very far, but it was portable. So, so that, that was the beginning. <coughs> and uh, after this year or two in the late 60s of all these Moog records coming out, uh, a lot of the people who uh, learned how to use these modular systems began saying, we'd like to have something we could take on with us on a session. They were session musicians. You know, can you put something in, in one suitcase uh, that, uh, you know, I, I can take myself without hiring a, a truck or a, a bunch of roadies? And that's what the Mini Moog was supposed to be. We, when we designed the Mini Moog, our, our model user of the Mini Moog was a session musician. We didn't think of people playing this stuff on stage. And then, uh, what were your impressions of Keith Emerson during that time? Uh, <laughs> Gosh. Well, uh, I'm trying to think exactly when I uh, saw Keith play. It was uh, the first time I ever saw him play was in Gaelic Park in New York City, and uh, I think it was on their first tour. It was I'd never seen anything like it. You know, I, I come from a generation uh, where we listened to cool jazz and. You know, we, we danced to uh, uh, Stan Canton and Maynard Ferguson, you know, people like that. And, uh, you know, rock and roll was sort of uh, going on off to the side. Even for me, you know, it, of course we knew, we, we knew about uh, the Beatles and the Stones, uh, but, but I'd never actually been to one of those concerts. And, uh, you know, seeing Keith Emerson on stage with, with his organ and his, his knife and, you know, playing this big modular synthesizer, it was just, it was a hoot. It was, uh, <laughs> I, I remember feeling incredibly exhilarated. Could you see the seeds of potential things to come from that show? I suppose so. I, I never thought too much about the future because, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a process. It was always the next thing to do the next thing. And I, I, I never did and I, I still don't worry too much about what's going to be happening five or ten years from now. So that was really fascinating. It's great to hear Dr. Robert Moog talk about Keith Emerson, who of course was a icon in the music industry and a good friend of NAM. He often was uh, behind a NAM booth. Uh, I remember first meeting him in 2000 and uh, was lucky enough to uh, interview Keith uh, for the NAM Oral History Program back in 2009. Uh, he was born in 1944, by the way, passed away uh, just last year, 2016. I, it also reminded me of uh, a couple of other musicians that we've been lucky enough to interview who were um, very inspiration uh, inspired by uh, the Moog. Um, George Duke comes to mind. We were lucky enough to interview him, John Eaton, and um, just to hear how they added their own personal uh, creativity to the Moog, I think was... Uh, um, very humbling for Dr. Moog. He mentioned that a couple of different times uh, in conversations that I had. One here at the Museum of Making Music in Carlsbad, where he was very humbled by the fact that these guys that he idolized, uh, not being a musician himself, um, were able to take his creation and elevate it with their own passion and skills. And now let's hear from Dr. Moog, kind of reflecting a little bit on his career now that he you know, it was getting towards the end of his career and everything, just looking back on it all. 
there a time in your career, the development of your products, did you sometimes look back and say, what was I thinking if I'd just done that differently? Is there anything that stands out? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> uh, I suppose so. I suppose the first thing is, you know, why, why did I listen to, to the early experimenters who or experimental musicians who said they weren't interested in pitch. You know, why did I do that? <laughs> because, uh, you know, our, our oscillators uh, were hard to keep in tune at the early oscillators. And uh, actually, Ed and, and Jim here on the crew, we, we just went to the floor and we got yeah. a little bit of B-roll of you. And Ed was observing, here you are in this, you know, it's a nice size booth, but it's relatively yeah. small to some. And, yeah. and do, you, do you sometimes look around and say, you know, if it really wasn't for me and some of the people I work with, this this whole area of this convention floor may not be here or maybe it wouldn't be what it is today. Does that ever dawn on you what you contributed? You know, it dawns on a lot of people who come around and say hello to me. It, uh, if, if that was said to me once in the last two days, it's, it's been said a hundred times. Uh, and... Uh, you know, who, who can tell what would happen if something else didn't happen? Uh, I, I, th I think it was in the air that, that, that you know, the idea, it was, no, in the air is an old-fashioned uh, way of describing it. It was on the network. And, you know, the network is the air, but, but it's also, you know, what ties us all together in the air. Uh, and it was out there. You know, the, 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 all you had to be is a little tuned in and you could feel it, and I just happened to, you know, be tuned in and ready to do something at that time. Other people would have, you know, would have come in, and maybe things would have been a little bit different, maybe not. I know you mentioned earlier that you don't necessarily um, think so much of the future, but it, seeing all that's gone, gone on in the last 25 years, mm. who could have imagined where do you see it going, or where would you like to see all this going? I mean, when you think of the end user and the people that mm. other people watch perform with musical instruments, yep. where would you like to see it go? I'd like to see it somehow continuing to bring people together. Uh, you know, a, a lot of musical idioms today and the technological means of distributing music are, are going in a direction of separating the musicians from each other and separating the musicians from the listeners. And uh, I think electronics as a technology is capable of going the other way. And I, uh, that's, that's what I'd like to see happen. Uh, I, I think it's so important that we use technology to, to to build up communities of, of listeners, of participators, part, participants, <laughs> participators. Where'd that come from? <laughs> so next we're going to hear Dr. Moog talking about MIDI. And for those that don't know, um, MIDI is basically a way for um, different electronic instruments to communicate with each other. Um, and before MIDI, there was really no standard for um, instruments. And and it was difficult to make a certain keyboard work with another one. Um, but with MIDI, all of those problems were gone, and it was the universal language for these instruments. Um, so we're going to hear Dr. Moog talk about the development of it and how it really changed everything for the better. What were you thinking? Were you surprised? And what were your thoughts 
when eventually they came up with the common po protocol? Did it shock you that it happened, or did you see it coming? Uh, no, it all, it's, it all seemed very natural. You know, two years before MIDI was announced officially, Dave Smith and, and one of his colleagues gave a talk where he described you know, the basic ideas that became MIDI. And he described it at, a, at a, an audio engineering society convention. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it seemed like a very good idea at the time. I, I can remember uh, as, you know, when MIDI was first being formed, uh, there, was, there was interest uh, by a few people in this country but uh, you know, the, the, uh, as I remember it now, uh, the Japanese manufacturers were quicker to see the importance of, of MIDI, and they were the ones who did the first work in actually getting it in, into uh, instruments and getting it out to where it could be demonstrated and sold at a place like the NAB show here. Uh, I can remember doing uh, uh, an interview for a magazine article I wrote in 1983 and 1984 when my old company, Moog Music, was saying, well, we're just, uh, I was told this, you know, we're just watching to see how it develops. Uh, we, don't, we don't know how important this is gonna be. In the meantime, you know, Roland and Yamaha and, and of course, uh, Dave's uh, sequential circuits are, are just plowing ahead. And, and speaking of that, how difficult was it to sell a company that you put your life into and then eventually recover the name back? Was it was that just a difficult <laughs> time for you, or it just part of the doing business? Uh, the answer to the question is yes. <laughs> it, it was both uh, a difficult thing to do, and it was part of doing. It's something we had to do. Uh, uh, I was never one to to. to uh, do financial planning all that well or to raise money all that well. And that's what it comes down to. And then, and then finally, um, talking about the convention floor and people coming up to you, mm. I, I know you just finished a film, mm. and then along with this convention, what's it make it, you feel like to see all of these different people and getting an opportunity to see them again on a fairly routine basis mm. and just talk about what you love and that's making sounds? Well, that's, that's where the reward comes. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I'm an engineer. I, I like my electronics well enough. You know, that's, that's fun. But uh, over the years, it's the people you meet, both the musicians who use our stuff and the fellow engineers. You know, to me, that's, today, that's what it's all about. You were talking about it in the era, yeah. being of that particular era of yeah. development. I think a good way to go out a, a different way and maybe get what we want is how would you compare that era of the, of the 60s and into the early 70s when you were developing maybe to compare it to now? Was there a distinction between what's being developed now and how it's being developed and what was going on back then? Well, back in the 60s, uh, most electronic musical instrument designs were, were tone generators that were fixed in pitch. There was a great emphasis on being fixed. 
uh, and uh, you know somehow uh, after talking w with the, these uh, experimental composers, the idea of, of of it being necessary to make the the pitch programmable and and dynamic uh, made made sense to me, and I, I went in a different. Uh, direction because of that, and, and the reason I went there, I I think uh, th there are three parts to the reason. Uh, one part is that that's what the musicians wanted. Uh, the, the second part is that the technology, uh, what was becoming available in electronics, allowed one to do that uh, in a, in a in a more practical way than it was available before that. And and the third is. Uh, it's, it's something between an idea and, and a feeling, you know, just a sense that this makes, that, that this is going to be useful. And that sense, I, uh, I, I, I <laughs> that sense just comes from outside. And it comes outside uh, because of, uh, of the energy, the, the creative energy that's in the air is contributed to by millions, billions of people. Uh, and, it, you know, this is not something you can take a picture of or stick a microphone on or, or you know, or analyze with a computer. Uh, but if you are sensitive, uh, if you do have the right feeling and, and the right way of looking at something, uh, you, you can pick up this sort of awareness. I think today, uh, you know, one thing I could po I could point to that might illustrate what I see today is the iPod. Uh, you know, the 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 iPod is is possible uh, because of the sophistication, current sophistication of digital electronics. Uh, but it's a particular combination of features. Uh, was uh, turned out to be, uh, you know, very successful. It's selling a lot of iPods now, but it it wasn't obvious to, to everybody when the iPod first came out that it was going to be this successful. And it's the insight that the people at Apple had in, de in designing it, and th and they got that insight from out here, from the energy, what everybody wants and what everybody's thinking. Uh, and they, they're just lucky they, they, they were tuned in to the right part of that. So that concludes our interview with Dr. Robert Moog, but we have a little bonus treat, bonus content at the end here, where we're actually going to hear from his daughter, who has kind of taken over um, preserving the legacy of her father. She works with the Moog Foundation. Is that correct, Dan? That's right. She yeah. created that uh, in a way of utilizing what her father had started, uh, which is creativity that inspires others to make music and utilizing uh, some school curriculum and some other uh, sources. Uh, Michelle has really done a fantastic job uh, keeping her father's flame uh, very well uh, in the forefront of um, inspiration. And uh, it was a real pleasure to interview her as part of the NAM Oral History Program. So as 
uh, Elizabeth said, we wanted to play just a little bit of the clip uh, from her. We've taken theremins, synthesizers, and mogafogers into the schools in the local area. We're in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, to great effect, one of our volunteers, our creative director, David Hamilton, has kind of spearheaded that effort. And the response has been just great. The kids absolutely love it. The theremin provides such an interesting interface to engage kids in the science behind the sound, which is something we're trying to, to teach kids. And um, they've really been turned on by it. And it's, it's interesting because it's kind of across the board. Kids who are not otherwise engaged in their curriculum have been in, have engaged in that. And the teachers have really, really enjoyed it as well. Mm -hmm. We've also taken these interactive setups with the theremins and mogafogers and um, the synths um, out to area festivals and uh, regional festivals and just kind of educated people on how to play them and um, you know what some of the basic physics and sciences behind the sound and people love it because I think people know it but they don't understand it and they certainly don't have access to it and to just so easily be able to get your hands on it and just wander with it, it really engages people we have pictures of you know a one-year-old tweaking the no knobs on a mogerfoger and an 80-year-old playing a theremin with this cute this like light bulb expression on their face. So that's, that is part of how we're carrying out our mission. Um, the other part is just trying to preserve um, Bob Moog's extensive archive, because there's a lot of, of its inspiration and education to be found in those archives. And uh, the final way is the creation of the Moogseum. We are planning um, to construct a Bob Moog Museum or Moogseum in Asheville, North Carolina in probably three to five years. We just received our first big grant for that project and that's going to kind of be the nexus of, of our goals, but it's going to be highly interactive and educational. Right. Yeah, so we are, we are reaching out, you know, we're a small organization, but reaching out as much as we can to carry on the legacy. And we'll be doing a lot more as well. And this, you know, the exhibit at the museum is, is a way of doing that as well. I think part of the lesson that Bob Moog's legacy shares is, you know, with a lot of perseverance and focus and determination, one person can make a huge impact. And I think that's, that's a lesson that we can all take away from it and integrate in our own, own lives. That, again, that was Michelle Moog, the daughter of Dr. Robert Moog. And you can really tell anytime you speak with her just how passionate she is for continuing music advocacy and making sure kids are learning instruments and getting them into their hands, which I think is phenomenal. We need more people like her and her team out there promoting that work. So that concludes our podcast for today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening and subscribing and we hope you go online and leave us some feedback because we are always dying for positive feedback and again if you have any suggestions on future episodes or you have any ideas of can't miss interviews that dan needs to be conducting then make sure you drop us a line at library at nam.org we'll see you guys in two weeks <laughs>